You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Uh, good afternoon. You are with the Renegade Economists, and this week we have a International Women's Day special takeover. Ladies are in charge this week. Uh, my name is Raina Fahey. You may recognise my voice because occasionally I, I pop up on the show. Uh, and this week I have have taken over, and I am interviewing a very special friend of mine and an extremely smart woman who last year I interviewed on International Women's Day and it was such a great success of a show and so many great things have happened in this particular person's life in the last 12 months that I thought, let's do it again. So I have with us today Juanita McLaren, policy researcher for the Good Shepherd Australia New Zealand. Hi, Juanita. Hi, Raina. How are you going? I'm going great. It's good to have you here. Great. I love your introduction. Um, <laughs> that was very kind of you. I think I'm just doing what we're all doing. But anyway, thanks very much. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I like about talking to you, Juanita, is your humility, because actually the work you're doing <laughs> is incredibly important and pleased to have the opportunity to get more people to know what you're up to. So last year we had this fantastic conversation about the role of the government welfare system in supporting or hindering the lives of single mothers. Yeah. It was a really great interview and it's still online if any of our listeners actually want to go back and listen to that because it's it's really interesting. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about the response that you had to that show. Oh, look, it's been exciting because the the main thing is is that it hasn't changed policy or anything that could take forever. But what it has actually got people to do is have a conversation. And I remember us saying, let's talk about it, talk about it at your dinner parties, whatever. And it is. People have been listening to it and discussing it and saying, thank you, I thought it was just me, or thanks for doing this um, and going out and calling this out as it is. Uh, There are a lot of women out there who are, you know, might be frightened to pursue things with regards to welfare or child support because they just they're escaping domestic violence or they don't know where to start. Um, so it's actually been really great that particular podcast. A lot of people have listened to it even just in the last few months um, and contacted me about you know the CEDAW agreement, the UN stuff. Had we started talking about the UN stuff last? We were st- it was in progress, wasn't it? I'm not sure, but why don't you just tell yeah. us again, anyways? Okay, I'll tell you again. Okay, so last year uh, we put in an individual complaint. When I say we, I mean National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, with the help of some um, human rights lawyers particularly Beth Goldblatt from Sydney, we decided to put an individual complaint to the um, committee of the the CEDAW committee, so for the Convention of the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women that's based at the UN, to basically outline how the parenting payments 
which is not enough anyway. We've established that the money is not sustainable that you get for being a single parent, parenting payment single. When your youngest turns eight, you're forced to go onto New Start allowance. So you're not recognised as a single parent anymore. You're an unemployed worker. And the drop can be up to, you know, $150 a fortnight or thereabouts. So what we decided to do was to put an individual complaint, a formal correspondence, I think you call it, that outlines outlined the three-year comparison of when I had an income, when I was on parenting payment single, and what would have happened on New Start. And all of the, you know, not not even the things that I was having trouble paying for, but, but the things that were just not being done at all, um, yep. where food becomes discretionary. So that was officially lodged in September. It took about two years to get all the information together because you have to prove, in order to go to CEDAW or to the UN, you have to prove that you have followed all of the procedures domestically. So you've gone to the government, you've put together um, evidence-based facts, you've done all the things and they're still not listening and so you go to the UN and you say, this is breaching my human rights, it's gendered because 85% of single mums in Australia are women, of single parents are women Therefore, it is sex discrimination, yada, yada. So what did the um, UN say? They registered it. We got, you know, a letter to say, hey, you've got a ticket like you do at the deli. And they... <laughs> Calling <laughs> number 33. <laughs> number 33. We officially sent it in September. We also spoke with the Philip Olsted, who is the... Um, Special Rapporteur for the UN, for the United Nations Against Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, you know, to do extreme poverty and human rights. Uh, so we met with him as well so that he could back us up. Then CEDAW said, yep, you've got your ticket, you're registered. We've sent the Australian government a copy of your complaint. Basically, the report, the report we sent them shows that it keeps single mothers under the poverty line. So it's a violation of our human rights um, and has that knock-on effect with the children as well. So that's with the Australian government and they've got six months to respond. So probably July, we should expect some sort of response. Now, they don't have to do anything because we are, even though we're signatories or we're on the Human Rights Committee, uh, we don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia per se. So even though we're breaching human rights, uh, there's no accountability for it at this stage. That's a very convenient thing that Australia does <laughs> is signing up to these international <laughs> agreements but not backing them up with legislation. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Although we have in Victoria, yay Victoria. Yeah, so it's just so contradictory. And what it means is that even if the Australian government doesn't, well, it has to respond, but it might just say, yeah, whatever. Um, we can't actually do anything about it. What it does do, however, is that CEDAW will write their own response to our letter, which we can use, you know, to generate discussion and hopefully maybe media and 
just inform people of what's going on. And also we can, you know, just ourselves, the National Council of Single Mothers, me as an individual, all the all the women, all the people who are behind this thing, we can use that um, to generate some really strong conversations about this is not on. It's not actually getting better. Yeah, so and getting it on the public record is yeah. incredibly powerful when it comes to, you know, a government can say, oh, I just don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Writing a letter to the minister is one thing, but actually having the United Nations involved is is incredibly symbolic, if not um, very teethy, uh, so to speak. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, good on you. It's an incredible, I think it's an incredibly powerful little campaign and it's um, certainly the people I've spoken to about it just gone, hey, I know this this thing's going on. Um, people have been like, wow, that's really cool because the the idea that somehow at eight your children become magically cheaper is really quite... <laughs> yeah, I want these children, because the my my youngest children, I, I'm lucky I've got two of them, they've just turned eight. So if I was in mm. that situation, this would be affecting me right now. And I swear they've doubled in costs since they turned eight. Yeah. Oh, yeah it just makes no crazy. sense. Yeah. Look, my eldest now has just turned 13. He's six foot tall. He's just moved into size 13 shoes. So to get him a new pair of trainers, you know, 130 bucks. And I know there are people out there who can say just go to, you know, Kmart and get them. But when your children are sort of, you know, not rolling in cash and they're at that age where... um you know, image is important and being a part of a group is important and that social inclusion. And you have to sort of pick and choose, well, okay, he can, I can't afford to have him in all the this snazziest gear, but I will pay for good shoes. Um, and it just, you know, you do that two or three times a year because that's how often they wear out. And it... <laughs> It adds up, as you know, and I've got three of them. It's like a thousand dollars a year on shoes. Yeah, and it's actually more economical to to buy better quality shoes because they're going to wear them out, you know, slower. In theory, yeah, um, yeah. You know, assuming they don't get lost or whatever, uh, kids' shoes. Well, also, you know. we were we were just finding that buying secondhand shoes they would last a month. As you're saying, you know, they just don't have the longevity in them because, A, they've been worn by someone else so it fits someone else's feet and, B, they're just on the way out. If they're going to end up in an op shop, it's because they're on their way out. So anyway, that's that. And there are all the other expenses. Um, Sport, we've mentioned that before, how important it is for kids, especially in single-parent households, for kids to be involved in external activities like a sport, um, for the social inclusion, for health reasons, for, you know, experience in learning how to work as a team or even as, you know, the male mentor kind of thing, having a coach to look up to if they don't have, you know, a consistent male in their life. So all of those things actually get more expensive. 
So we shall see. Yeah, well, uh, well this July. time next year, hopefully, we'll, <laughs> we'll take over again, a little annual yeah. annual takeover, and um, we might have a response. It'll be really, really good to follow up on that. So what else have you been working on? So I am in the Women's Research Advocacy and Policy Centre at Shepherd doing policy and advocacy. So I've been doing more research on single mothers on welfare to work and how it affects their personal agency and financial security. This time, though, we got a grant from Victorian Women's Trust from the Jean McKackie Social Justice Trust Fund, subfund. So we've broadened it. So now we're interviewing women in WA and Queensland and South, all over, over the country, some rural, some from the cities, to get a bigger perspective because the research I'd done when I spoke to you last year, all the women I'd interviewed were Melbourne-based, university-educated, had a lot of social capital, but were still experiencing all of these issues. So we wanted to see what what added layers of disadvantage would they have if they were living in a rural town, for example, or if they were living in an ex- expensive city without an without a university education. So we found, once again, surprisingly, the the conditionality and the you know the things that these women have to do in order to receive their parenting payments are you know, quite often 15 to 20 hours a week, they're not letting go of their ambitions or what they're chasing, whether it's studies or a career. They're doing it as well as participating in these ridiculous punitive, what are they called, approved activities. So 15 to 20 hours a week. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, for example, in that time... If, you, if you've established that your job network provider isn't able to help you find a job in the career you want, you might be someone who is keen on writing and wants to work for a newspaper or you might, I don't know, be starting up your own business. So one woman I interviewed was starting up her own business. Uh, she came from a, a country town where everyone knew her anyway. She had been in a marriage that a few people disagreed with because there was an age difference and they thought she was something money-grubbing or something. Marriage fell apart and then she found people in her job network agency were refusing to deal with her because they had judged her based on a marriage that they disagreed with. On top of that, she was trying to start her own business but they weren't including the time she was spending on building a client base and starting up the web, you know, what is it called, a website and all that. That wasn't included as approved activity. What, building her actual business? Building her actual business. Yep. So she was still having to do other stuff, voluntary work and apply for jobs because she wasn't earning the money through her own business and yes, she's trying to build it. So she's having to do other work on top of it that were approved activities. And it's a really common thing. (laughs) 
So the job network system is just set up to channel people into yes, wage but work. It, it's more than it's more than that. It's the incentives are given to the job network agency. So probably I'd say sixty percent of particularly the ones outside of Victoria who actually went and got their own jobs and just were just on parenting payment to sort of bridge a gap of restarting or rebuilding or re re envisioning their lives after a breakup or whatever. Um, work providers would then insist on getting the number of where they got their jobs so that they could call them and touch base and then record within their own records that they had got a person a job. And then they'd get, you know, the thousands of dollars incentives for, you know, filling this this job. And luckily these women were really savvy and they were all saying I'm not giving you my details. I'm not giving you credit for everything that I have done myself, um, which some in some instances got them into a bit of trouble, but they were right. So this is happening. Um, so the money is, it's actually just a business transaction between the government and these private agencies. Uh, and it's really nothing to do with getting people back to work or, helping people anyway it's it's just about creating jobs for the people who actually work at the job network agency oh absolutely so have you got any advice if there's anyone out there listening to the show who's in these in the situation uh have you got any advice Mm. as to good places for um, people to go for support oh yeah look if you are experiencing that kind of discrimination or you're getting pressured into um, doing stuff that's not quite right, like if they're asking you to sign off on contracts at your job network agency um, but refusing to show you the job plan they've created, for example, refusing to give you a copy. When when it feels not quite right, the Australian Council of Social Services uh, you can call them and, and explain the situation and ask what your rights are. Um, in Victoria, they counsel single mothers and their children. They uh, have a hotline for that kind of thing. And also the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, which is based in Adelaide. They're the main ones that I used myself when I was going through this whole process. And they can tell you what your rights are and sort of empower you to just say no. Because a lot of the time you think you don't have a choice, but even saying no is a choice. So you can get empowered by them. And if you don't need those services, but you want to do something to help, um, you can go and give the, those organisations some money. That would be that would be cool because they're all doing really important work in our community. Fantastic. Yes, they do. And they all struggle. Because most of the work that we do on a state level with these support services come from a hole that's created by our federal policy. So the federal feds refusing to give people enough money that is, you know, we're trying to get them to increase Newstart by $75 a week, for example, to bring it up to the basic income level. Um 
So that creates a giant need, especially for women who are raising children alone, that then the state government or these local services have to fill, you know, by giving you money for helping you with money to pay bills or helping you with money to buy shoes or supporting you because simply it's there's just a gap in how in the cost of living and what you have. Mm. Um and I read this wonderful quote this morning in uh, I don't know if that the book Utopia for Realists about um universal basic income which I've also been doing a lot of work on this year. Um, and it said that people confuse poverty with stupidity. And God, it resonated with me because these, you know, the single mothers parenting payment single and having to go on New Start and being forced to go to CV writing seminars and forced to do a course in tractor driving or whatever, which is applicable for some people. Some people do need those supports, but a whole bunch don't. And it's kind of taking away their personal agency when you do say people say, you know, people with no money are obviously stupid and can't handle their money. It's not that. It's just that they don't have any. Yeah. (laughs) And the implication is that someone is on a benefit because they that's what they want to do. <laughs> that's a choice. <laughs> so, oh, what should I yeah. do today? I know, I'll be unemployed. Like nobody thinks... I'll be poor. Nobody thinks like that. I mean, I'm sure there are a few mm. people that do, but we are basing uh, an entire social policy approach based on this assumption, which is radically incorrect. Uh, yes. But we've got these really dangerous stereotypes in our society, which we continue to perpetuate through the media and, and people's conversations when it's just actually not true. So it's just, it's so great that uh, you're doing the work that you're doing and also empowering other women to stand up and go, hey, I'm not going to be ashamed of my situation because it's actually not my fault. I'm doing the best here and what I need is more help and more support. Yeah. Not less. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there's all kinds of studies being done on, on how detrimental it is to people's mental health and how that in turn hinders them from living the life they could be living and and reaching their full potential because they're just being told you can't. It's it's like, um, do you mind if I segue into one of my interesting topics of, I'm really interested in it, but I don't want to, I don't want to say, yeah, I'm really interested in, in in a positive, like this is my new pet hobby thing. This is just something that has organically been blasting its way into my face, um, which is the cashless debit card um, that is rolled out in a number of areas in rural Australia, particularly aimed at Aboriginal communities, whereby 80% of your welfare is actually allocated. So you can only use it at certain shops to buy certain things and you have access to 20% of your um, benefits in cash, which, you know, works out to be for some people like, I don't know, 100 100 bucks a fortnight. Um, But what's happening is uh, I saw a woman from Seduna and her name was Val, I think. Anyway, 
she had actually, she was in her 60s. She was finally walking out on a, of a um, violent marriage. The kids had left home. She'd been a stay-at-home mum, finally leaving. But because she lived in this trial area of Seduna, um, she had to have her cashless debit card. And yet she couldn't go to the op shop to buy furniture. She couldn't go to the op shop to buy new clothes or saucepans or whatever, all the things that she needed to set up a new place um, because you you can't use the cashless debit card there. They're all linked to businesses in the community like the supermarket. or um, So basically you're being told what you need and what you can spend your money on. Yeah, so when we travelled around Australia, one of the things that I noticed was that a lot of these communities, really isolated communities, there isn't a huge amount of retail options. You know, there's not three shops to choose from, there's, there's the shop. So if you can't spend your entitlements there, then you can't get the things. <laughs> so it's like yeah, the closest exactly. option's 500 kilometres away. Yeah, or even for some people, the closest option might be 30 kilometres away, but there's not a link. So you can't use your card outside your town. Um, so, and in order, how's this? In order to go from 80-20 to 50-50 with your, you know, your welfare split, that's your only other option is 50-50, you have to get written confirmation by eight different agencies including your local hospital, the local police, the local DSS. Um, oh, who else? Um, any local support agencies that you might have had something to do with. Eight of them is on the list. They all have to sign off to say that you are able to manage a 50-50 split. Wow, now, that's that's the most dehumanising yeah. thing. That, I mean, this is what I want to know: is who are these people that come up with these ideas? Like, where is this little office where they go right? What we need to do is come up with a way that we can take away any sense of self or independence that this person's got. Right, come up with the ideas, people, and that's yeah, where these ideas, these policies come from. It's just revolting. Well, there, there's it's a. It's an incentive-based policy, but what it's actually doing is just becoming more and more punitive. And the, the interesting thing is the amount of money that is spent on implementing these things. Like, um, I think it's something like $14,000 per person per year just to implement the cashless debit card. That's not including the welfare payment. That's, oh, is it more? Anyway, just the cost of implementation and the cost of monitoring, if that was, you know, God, it screams in support of universal basic income. So, yeah, the UBI, do you want to explain what that means? Because not all of our listeners would know what a universal basic income is. Uh, Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay, let me have a bash at it. I'm not all over it, but I am all over it in the most basic sense. So universal basic income is refers to an amount of money, of welfare, whatever you want, income that matches 
basic income needs. It's universal because everybody has access to it. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be rich. Everyone has access to this basic income um, that you can tap into when you need to. Um, and it's unconditional. You just have it. And what studies have found is that by giving people money, they've done loads of trials in Kenya and Rwanda, I think, recently, and uh, Canada, Switzerland just had a referendum on it last year. And they're actually showing that by just giving people money to bridge the gap of... um, you know, precarious working conditions or underemployment, for example, or divorce, that kind of thing, Um, that people aren't going, woohoo, look at all this cash, I'm going to go out and drink more and take more drugs. They're actually all the studies that have been done on it are showing that people are using the money to put into starting up their own businesses, into better nutrition, into education, And it actually, in most cases, the amount of work people are doing might only drop by 1% to 3%. And that's generally for people to stay at home with newborns longer. This is across the world. All the stats are there. All the evidence is there. And yet there's this incredible fear by government to actually have a go. I don't know why we aren't just trialling it even in just a small section. You know, you do 10 people, $25,000, just give it to them and just see. Yeah, because the the underlying assumption with the UBI is that instead of creating this incredibly costly welfare system to decide when and where people are entitled to money, just have that basic assumption that everyone's entitled to, to money. Everyone's just... There's a, there's yeah. a human it's right a human to have right. access to an income. Um, it's yeah. incredibly cost efficient compared to the the ridiculousness yeah. of the welfare system. If we're paying $14,000 per person per annum to implement a cashless card system. Debit I mean, card, yeah. I'd just give them 14K. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. it just makes so and, much more um, sense. And, it, and what I really like about card, it, Sorry, oh, what I really yeah. like about it is the um, the way that people could use that at different periods of their life. So, you know, yeah. if you are working and you don't have any kids, you can sort of save that up to invest in something. I mean, it could be a holiday, but that's actually not a bad mm. thing. People having holidays is actually quite important for the overall yeah. health of our system. Um, but it could be, you know, saving up to start a small business. You know, you could be running a little side hustle, making jewellery or something. Anything to improve the efficiency of people's lives and give them more creative creative license to try stuff. It's got to be good. Instead of having people spending all these hours being accountable on welfare when they're on welfare. It's like it, as soon as you slip up or you need a break or whatever, the government just treats you like a giant pile of poo. They actually do, and they um, don't have any clue about what's really happening. Um, 
So if you read a, a blog that I did last week with a colleague, we wrote about what would happen to Natalie Joyce if she wasn't married to a politician and if she was a regular 50-year-old woman who had suddenly become a single mother of four after 25 years out of the workforce, what would her reality be? Yeah. And we, look, we looked at it next to the policy that, that Barnaby Joyce follows and it just shows that they have no idea what is actually happening outside their bubble of the realities that women are, you know, at her age in, or in their 60s more so, are the highest, what is it, at-risk at group in Australia of, of homelessness. I mean, what's that when you've worked your whole life raising children and probably enabling a man to do his job? in the way he wants to, to then just have nothing and to be so undervalued. Go to Power to Persuade and it's called Citizen Joyce. Right. So that's the Power to Persuade blog, is it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. I've done a whole bunch of stuff on there about about the system, about how job network is costs, how much it costs and what how how it doesn't help people and stuff. Um, you have a read because I don't just rant. There's some really serious number crunching in there um, for people who, you know, don't want to listen to someone rant. I know some people have said about the UN um, correspondence, there were some people on a website saying, she thinks that's poverty, try going to Africa. And, uh, you know, you do get people missing that point that it doesn't have to be like that here. Yeah. We can afford it. We just don't want to. And um, to really look at the unpaid work that women do, God, if it had a dollar, dollar sign, all the hours and all that unpaid labour, and there's a real fear to look at that because, you know, People who are implementing those policies might have to do some different kind of work. Mm, indeed. Anyway. Well, hopefully one day the Productivity Commission's going to look at um, how much free labour women are contributing to this. They're calling fine for economy. that again. Mm. Yeah, they they are calling for that again, aren't they? For the next year or something. Anyway, it's been fantastic chatting to you and if you want to follow more of what Juanita's doing, um, go to the Power to Persuade blog and I think you're on you're on Twitter as well. Uh, yes, so, at so Defrosted Lady. Defrosted Lady, yep. Um, it's been great. It's been an honour as always okay. and um, let's uh, have another 12 months of smashing the patriarchy and we'll, we'll catch up maybe next year. Oh, we better catch up before then, Raina. You're on The Renegade Economist with Raina Fahey in an International Women's Day takeover. Uh, your your lovely host, Carl, will be back next week. Check out the work of the show and, and the rest of the organisation on earthsharing.org.au. And you're on 3CR.